0: This week on Making Contact. When African-American women were trapped in their homes and in the Superdome, we looked at them and did not see citizens. We saw refugees.
1: Since the days of slavery, the African-American woman has been subjected to stereotypes. The mammy, the angry black female, and the hypersexual woman. These stereotypes continue to this day and permeate through pop culture. Class matters and economics matter
0: and race matters in these very real resource ways, but it also matters because it separates us from the ability of being able to be accurately seen.
1: On this edition, author and political science professor Melissa Harris-Perry speaks about the stereotypes black women face and how it has limited the ways in which society views them as true citizens. I'm Esther Mania, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas and important information.
0: The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected one, a person in America
1: is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman.
2: Praise the Lord, Mr. Lume. Is your hair or is you Hi, you in? How come you here? Some say women in hip-hop videos are adornments, much like jewelry. Nothing more than walking blame.
1: There's been a turn in the tide where we have a plethora of female bodies represent this culture, but no female voices.
2: Now look at the image of African-American women who are
0: on television. They're usually angry about something. And you talk about black women? Hey, no, we haven't had it uh, this bad in a long time.
1: Those are just some of the stereotypes black women face today. Delving deeper into the issue is Melissa Harris-Perry. Professor of Political Science at Tulane University, where she is the founding director of the Anna Julia Cooper Project on Gender, Race, and Politics in the South. She's a frequent columnist for The Nation and MSNBC. She is also the author of Sister Citizen, Shame, Stereotypes, and Black Women in America. Today, we hear excerpts of Melissa Harris-Perry speaking at St. Paul's Church in Oakland, California, on October 24th, 2011. This conversation is moderated by Blanche Richardson, co-owner of Marcus Books.
2: The first thing I'd like to ask Melissa is for her definition of politics.
1: Hmm. Well,
0: so it's a quirky book because it's not about voting. It's not about holding office. When I first started the book, it was about those things. It started out as a book about politics, how we might typically think of it, what it means to run for office, to try to represent the interests of Mm African-American women in the electorate. And now, at least in this context, politics is more about what it means to try to be a citizen, what it means to try to do the work of either knitting together or living with the Du Boisian double consciousness Mm -hmm. of what it means to be in a black woman's body, but also think of oneself as an American citizen. And what it means to navigate the political world in the broadest sense. So the world Mm -hmm. that is about power and resources and our social and cultural life. It's not a book so much about public policy, although public policy shows up in the text. Okay. Part of the citizenship experience, or the the metaphor that I use throughout the book, is this idea that the politics of black womanhood is about trying to find the upright in a crooked room. It's about trying to figure out an authentic self-expression, both individually and collectively, in a space that keeps giving back all of these crooked, tilted images of
2: ourselves. Could you tell us about the primacy of recognition as a precondition for citizenship and how misrecognition is experienced by black women? So, this is what happened August 29, 2005. So, I'd been writing a book about resource disparity,
0: all the things black women don't have. <laughs> and we can write yeah. plenty of, I probably need to write three more volumes, right? Because you can write the book about the educational disparities and the health disparities and the income disparities and the wealth disparities and all of the things in terms of resources we don't have that make a critical difference structurally when we're trying to do the work of politics. But on August 29, 2005, the levees failed after Hurricane Katrina in the city of New Orleans. And race and resource disparities were there. But the other critical thing that happened, the what I think is maybe the turning point moment in what has now affected the city for six years and I think actually affected the whole country ever since this moment, is that when African American women who are poor were trapped in their homes and on their homes and in the Superdome and in the convention center, we looked at them and did not see citizens, we saw refugees. And there is nothing inherently shameful or wrong about being a refugee. But it is a technically incorrect term (laughs) to describe citizens who have been abandoned by their government. Refugee is a very particular term and in fact had they actually been refugees they would have been more protected under international law than they were in fact by being internally displaced persons. So the reason the book gets thrown away and, and restarted and it becomes this book is I decided that for as bad as the resource disparities are that before I could get there I needed to back up and think about what it means to be misrecognized, to not be seen. But I'm interested in the fact that in a democracy and this democracy in particular, we have this promissory note as Dr. King called it, this, this bad check. And the bad check is that declaration of independence that promises that there are these unalienable rights Mm -hmm. and that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This idea that that in this particular democracy, human fulfillment is part of the democratic process, that being appropriately and accurately recognized is part of what it means to engage politically. And then we have Du Bois at at the turn of the 20th century telling us that double consciousness is about having to see yourself through the eyes of others who are looking on with amused contempt and pity. And we have the the poetry that tells us I wear the mask that grins and lies. Mm -hmm. And we have even in our most fundamental policy decisions, we have Homer Plessy v. Ferguson, which of course establishes separate but equal for the 20th century, right? And Homer Plessy, you know, is a Creole of color from New Orleans. And Homer Plessy is so visibly white that he has to go to the train conductor and tell the train conductor that he's breaking the color barrier, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So when the Supreme Court decides the case that becomes separate but equal, that determines for the 20th century the second-class citizenship of black folks, it's in part a case about recognition. It is in part a case that says, even though you would be recognized always as passing, even if you're not actively meaning to pass, right? Homer Plessy just passes into whiteness in his sort of creole of color Mm -hmm. color body, but that he is moved back into blackness by this Supreme Court that makes a decision, not only that black people are unequal, but also that any version of genetic blackness all counts as blackness altogether. So we have that on one end of the 20th century. And then on the other end of the 21st century, we have the election of Barack Obama to the U.S. presidency and the misrecognition consistently of Barack Obama as insufficiently black, way too black, Muslim, not American, not born here, anti-citizen, all mm-hmm. these. So I had this sense that recognition is happening as part of our political process. And so it, it's it's really an attempt to say that that class matters and economics matter and race matters in these very... Real resource ways, but it also matters because it separates us from the ability of being able to be accurately
2: seen. So, part of being a citizen then is being accurately recognized,
0: or at least having the possibility for it. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, we're—it's not a, a great call for individualism. Part of why post-racial always makes me feel a little icky is because, um, not because. I'm I'm so attached to race. I mean, I make a living from race, so I am attached to it in some important ways, but um but not that I'm so attached. Not the race has done so many great things, you know, for my family that I don't want to get rid of it, but that somehow post-racial always feels like like we're over y'all yeah. and y'all's problems, right? And we 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 we'd be happy not to hear from you anymore about whatever is is bothering
2: you about your race yeah, issues. Move, move on. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. One of the things I really liked about the book is the discussion of three classic stereotypes of black women. And you state in the book that possibly some people are not aware that these are stereotypes, but I find that very difficult to believe coming from my life.
0: <laughs> I swear, no, wait, I have to tell you. I swear, I swear.
2: <laughs> in, in your discussion of the myth of the hypersexual black woman, also known as the Jezebel, You write of the culture of dissemblance, which I thought was very interesting, created by blacks to conceal their authentic selves. Can you briefly explain this culture and also uh, tell the audience how R. Kelly, Mike Tyson, Clarence Thomas, and the so-called hot and tot Venus figure into this false stereotype? Sure. And it is a false stereotype. It is a false stereotype. Yeah. I don't know any hypersexual black women.
0: Um, well, I know some. <laughs> I mean, you know, I do. That's okay. I do. <laughs> I do. I kn- I, I also know some hypersexualized uh, white women and black men, yeah. and bl- so so um, so one of the one of the other concepts in the book is this idea of fictive kinship, mm-hmm. right? And this is so a lot of this book is borrowing. So fictive kinship is not mine, right? That's Carol Stack's, and it's this idea that we are related to each other not actually by blood, but when we call each other sister and brother, it's a fictive tie. When I tell you about Harriet Tubman or Garrett Morgan or or, or any of that, the reason it's supposed to matter to you is because we have fictive kinship, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if if Harriet Tubman did a great thing and she's a black woman, then I'm a black woman, so I could do a great thing, right? But the other side of this is, therefore, if Jezebel exists, if this hypersexual black woman exists, then I am also implicated in her. I I think part of the difference of the political work that it does is the Real Housewives of Pick Your City right, does not become a statement on who white women are as a group, right? So the Real Housewives can exist along with a belief that white women are still basically virtuous and good, but hip-hop cannot coexist with a belief that black women are basically virtuous and good, right? Right. Not that women who are involved in hip-hop are, are not virtuous and good, okay? So the, the Jezebel myth finds its way all the way back to slavery as a way of justifying the commodification not only of women's working labor, their physical Mm -hmm. labor, their agricultural labor, but their reproductive labor. You have to have a story to tell yourself if you believe in the Victorian cult of true womanhood, that women are these idealized, almost saint-like figures— then you have to explain how you can simultaneously believe that and believe it's perfectly appropriate to breed another group of women, right? And so part of the kind of white supremacist ideology that grows up around this version of American chattel slavery is that black women are hypersexual, Mm -hmm widely available lusty that, you, that they can't be raped because they're always you know acceptable to any um and they not, any not, not human, of, right. human anyway right well they're, they're not human and or they're sort of humanish they're like on the edge of human because if you own them you can have children with them regularly mm-hmm. right so so they're sort of humanish but not not quite human And this um, ideology or this this myth continues, not unbroken and with lots of challenges and quirkiness, but right into the contemporary era so that when you start talking about the welfare queen in the 1980s, it can resonate back, oh, that's right, that's right, black women don't control their fertility, right? They're not in control of themselves sexually, so we need to create public policies like involuntary sterilization, And I'm glad you brought up the the Tyson and the the Clarence Thomas and the R. Kelly, because part of what um, I try to talk about in the book is the fact that these myths are not just created by, or not at all created by, sort of 12 white guys sitting at a table somewhere casting down aspersions on black women. They are. Uh, they're part of a system, and African American communities are also complicit in that system. And so, um, when, for example, Clarence Thomas can say of the Senate confirmation hearings, this is a high tech lynching. lynching. <laughs> And as soon as he says lynching, and you know, black audiences never wanna believe this, but more than 50% of us supported Clarence Thomas's confirmation to the Supreme Court. And that support came after his analysis of this aggressive Senate confirmation hearing as a lynching, because we know whose side we're on in a lynching. Like we're real clear about that. Like if somebody's being lynched, we're not with the lynchers. We're with the person being lynched, right? That, that's, it's a trope, it's widely available. So what could Anita Hill have called what she was experiencing? What is our social trope? What is our word for the sexual abuse of a black woman by a black man and then white guys come to her rescue? What was that? That's a high tech what? N- nothing. Because <laughs> that never happened, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's. it's 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 why you know it's why you know that the lynching trope is wrong because no one no one no one has ever been lynched for the rape of a black woman. Nobody. That is an unpunished crime in American mm-hmm. history. Right? Doesn't mean that there aren't people now in prison for rape. But but as a matter of the the posseing up, and certainly no no posse of powerful white Mm -hmm. men ever showed up to protect a black woman from a black man. So she did not have something to say to call what she was experiencing. And so we, right, so we called her a hussy, or we called her someone who couldn't keep the dirty laundry in the community, or we called her somebody trying to keep a brother down because we don't have, as women, that same accessible kind of racial narrative about our Mm -hmm. experiences of abuse. Mm
1: We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800 529 5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Confronting Stereotypes of the Black Woman with author Melissa Harris-Perry, moderated by Blanche Richardson.
2: So I'm asking you if you can discuss the myth of the mammy, which as you say and I agree, is a painful and powerful mythology that depicts black women as faithful servants of white women's needs. And I'm wondering what are the roots of that stereotype and um, who benefits from it? So so of course the answer is there is nothing wrong with an honest day's
0: work as a domestic. And in fact, the vast majority of African-American women who were employed from the time of emancipation until the late 1960s worked as domestics. That, that was the primary space of, of, of wage earning and I am the granddaughter of a domestic and my grandmother was a brown skinned chubby, brilliant African-American Southern woman who put her children through college, sewing and cleaning and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And yet she was not mammy. And that distinction between the actual human beings who were the domestic workers, the maids, the help, and the image of Mammy is huge. And Mm -hmm. so you asked where it Mm -hmm. came from. So if Jezebel is a useful myth in slavery, when you need um, reproductive capacity of black women to produce new slaves, remember what happens in one day in the context of emancipation is that black reproduction goes from being a wealth creator to a malignancy. So overnight, right, the reproduction from a black womb is initially a wealth creator for the American system. It's what creates wealth. Remember the slave trade ends. So the only way to get new slaves is to produce them through black uteruses. And in fact, it is one of the crooked images of the room that In every other community, status was passed on by the father. Or rather, for for African-American, status was passed on by the mother. So your first gift, the first thing that you give your child as a black mother in the United States is slavery. It's the first thing that you give to your child. What you produce is a new slave. But with emancipation, black bodies are significantly less wealth creating mm-hmm. or at least less clearly wealth generating. There's all kinds of ways in which they generate wealth, but they, they're more troubling, they have to be controlled in new ways by the state. And so this very effective myth of the Jezebel is not so effective in freedom. Now what you need is two things. You need a romantic reassessment of slavery so that slavery wasn't really that bad, right? So remember that the myth of Mammy shows up in Jim Crow, but it's a myth about slavery, right? This is mm-hmm. the gone with the wind. So you have to remember that it wasn't horrible, that it was happy, and that there was a benevolent relationship. And so Mammy helps you to tell that story. But you also now, you don't want some sexy hot thing in the house with you and your family raising your kids. You have to turn her into this asexual, who would ever think docile. about touching her? Mm-hmm. Docile, no family of her mm-hmm. own. Now, the, the actual women who were actual domestic servants were victimized by sexual harassment, by rape, by abuse, at every point. And, and by cons- so called consensual sexual relationships that were deeply, deeply problematic because of the power relationships. But we, we, we have to write all of that out and tell the Mammy story in this particular way. And so Mammy is this useful myth that shows up later. Mm-hmm. And she is, I think, the most powerful. She is everywhere because she sells cookie jars, because she became the first icon of Madison Avenue. The first modern marketing tool was Confederate nostalgia. Before marketing even existed as a concept, when the, when they were first, those the first World Fair. You remember where Aunt Jemima showed up? Mm-hmm. Aunt Jemima showed up at the World's Fair making pancakes. The actual imbi- That's and the World's Fair was all about the creation of a new consumption mm-hmm. material. Buy things. You could have the Old South in a box. You could bring Mammy home and. And so, so watch out for her because she's not always in the body that you think.
2: The stereotype of the strong black woman, and it's discussed at length in its own chapter, but it comes up over and over and over again through the remainder of the book. And I wonder if you can talk about the consequences of this complex and uh, very prevalent stereotype. Sure. Um, you know, I'm an interracial child. My mother is, is a white
0: woman, and my family is particularly interracial. When we think about the, the pushback against kind of second-wave feminism by women, often by white women, the pushback is about wanting to retain some sense of privilege, right? So what you'll hear is, you don't want true equality because true equality will mean you you're no longer under the the coverture under the coverage of. Of male privilege, right? No man, and so they say it in silly ways, like, no man will open the door for you anymore. (laughs) Or they'll say it in more policy oriented ways, like, well, you wouldn't want to have to get drafted, would you, right? These were all the the scary consequences of the ERA. Is this idea that there is some aspect of gender inequality which is actually good for women? One of the groups who knows, of course, that that is a lie, right? Just that there is no way in which patriarchy covers or privileges women is women of color and particularly black women and particularly as embodied in the notion of the strong black woman because unlike white women whose position has all often been to silence them and to make them weaker and to portray them as incapable Right? So that, that carries with it a whole set of problematic consequences that second wave feminism pushes back against. But the construct of black women wasn't that they were weak and incapable and ineffective. It is rather that they are super strong, that they are capable of bearing all things, that they have an inherent capacity to meet all of life's circumstances all by themselves and kick adversity's butt. Now, one might think of that as very empowering, maybe even particularly compared to this notion of sort of white women as ineffective or weak or pitiful, but the fact is when it is an imperative, when if you are not super strong at all moments, if you are not meeting all adversity at all moments, you've somehow not just failed personally, but failed the whole race, and on the question of citizenship, if you believe it is your inherent racial and gendered responsibility, to meet all challenges, you might be a little less willing to put your own political concerns at the top of the agenda, whether that agenda is a racial agenda that says we have as much right to have our concerns heard as that of black men no matter how embattled they are that we too are embattled Mm -hmm. and have things to talk about or whether it's a matter of saying that we as citizens have a right to demand of the American state things that other citizens already demand of the American state. In both
2: ways, the imperative of strength can silence us. Mm-hmm. And you talk about just um, not serving our own needs and just even asking for, for help uh, is a sign of weakness, that you're, you're, you're not a strong black woman. Right, no, we are the help.
0: Be. That's right. Well,
2: we, are we are the help. We don't, we don't get help, right? We don't yeah. ask for help, yeah. <laughs> One of the most interesting chapters I thought was the chapter on a notion that I really had never thought about, but it's called shaming. Can you talk a little about shaming? Yeah. So this is just quickly back to that fictive kinship
0: idea that if the success of unrelated fictive kin, Harriet Tubman, Venus Williams, right? If their successes can reflect positively on me, then those crooked images, those negative behaviors or stereotypes or failings can simultaneously shame me. What I try to do in the text is talk about how so the, the three negative stereotypes are, you know, the Jezebel, the, the mammy and the, and the sapphire, or the angry black woman. The, the fourth is this attempt to push back against it with, with the strong black woman. So kind of an internally created myth, which I know we don't like to believe is mythical, but is still mythical, right? that pushes back against it. But that, that the challenge here is that this crooked room, full of these negative stereotypes, has real shaming consequences for African-American women's politics. Shame is both a physiological and political reality. When we feel ashamed, we actually have a physiological response to shame. There's a body posture associated with shame, and it's not, right? And it's also not that, right? Shame is, I mean, if you think about the whole notion of a black pride movement, why would one need a pride movement except to push back against an idea of shame? The concern though, is that things like the culture of dissemblance and the politics of respectability have been that we've attempted to manage shame by being uber respectable or super strong or dissembling who our true selves are. The danger of a shame management strategy in your politics is that it leaves out any community of people who can bring shame on the group. For example, You might fail to respond to the HIV crisis because you don't wanna talk about incarceration. You might fail to demand a fair family wage for single mothers of children because you feel ashamed of the notion of Jezebel. You might not speak up against patriarchy in black political leadership because you don't wanna be seen as the angry black woman. That when we're managing the shameful stereotypes, the crooked stereotypes, instead of tilting in relationship to them, we tilt so far the other direction that we actually still end up tilted rather than straight, still unable to have an authentic space to talk about and to demand for ourselves a, a, a set of political and social rights that other groups do feel capable of asking for themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KPFA Radio. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800 529 5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org. To get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Andrew Stelzer and Kyung Jin Lee, producers. Irene Flores, web editor. Steph St. Clair, development associate. Lisa Bartfai and Christopher Holmbach, production interns. And Barbara Barnett, Dan Turner. Megan LaSala, Ron Rucker, Alton Bird, Catherine Lee, and Deshawn Moore are our volunteers. I'm Esther Mania. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.